Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, an incredible founder. I mean, his story is uh, remarkable. What he has been able to accomplish is uh, it's unbelievable. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, on his journey and really getting inspired on everything that he has gone through, you know, while uh, building this business, before building this business. I mean, crazy stories with planes, you know, like with engines, you know, like uh, not functioning well. I mean, talking about uncertainty, I think that we're really going to enjoy this. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Omer Tyrek. Welcome to the show. Hey, uh, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm excited about uh, the conversation today, and uh, I think it's going to be fun. So let's let's start with doing a walk through memory lane, Omer. So so tell us about life being born and 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 raised there in Dubai. You know the Dubai that we don't know today. It was the Dubai of of full of deserts. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was an 80s kid uh, in a country that uh, nobody can uh, recognize that was the 80s kid because, you know, around the time I was growing up there, uh, there was a lot more desert and a lot more, uh, I would say, flat ground uh, than the, the buildings and the exuberance uh, that we see today and what the city has become. You know, what, what I saw growing up in Dubai was uh, a country that was figuring out what they needed to be when they grow up. And they were figuring it out faster than any other country in the world. Um, you know, they had significant amounts of money because of the oil and gas economy, but they knew that they were gonna run out of that at some point and needed to have something else for people to look forward to for, for Dubai to flourish and, and become a thriving country. And, you know, tourism became uh, the, the, call it uh, agenda for the government of Dubai. And, you know, we saw uh, during the late 80s and early 90s that country go from, uh, you know, uh, just desert and, and, and beautiful beaches to beautiful beaches and, one of, you know, the tallest buildings in the world and the most exuberant malls and honestly the most uh, wealth uh, maybe concentrated in, in, in a particular zip code uh, in the world. So saw that evolution right in front of my eyes and there were streets where I used to uh, ride my bike uh, that were flat grounds and 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 nothing else to uh, being then surrounded by skyscrapers taller than a, a little boy could see. <laughs> no kidding. But I think that there was a pivotal moment there when 
you decided that, you know, something that was of much of interest was astrophysics and applied uh, math, and, and that got you to travel quite a bit, you know, starting with Pakistan. So how was the experience of going to Pakistan? Yeah, no, you know, I, I grew up uh, wanting to to be an astrophysicist at a very early age, and I was fascinated with space, much like many of the kids in their 80s. I was, I was the only thing that was maybe different was I, I found a way of being very good with numbers, and physics became sort of my, uh, I would say, passion and studying it and learning the principles and understanding uh, how how science drives our society today uh, and the society outside of our imagination was something that I, I grew up with uh, with a pretty big fascination for and you know as I as I got older I, I knew that I needed to uh, by the way during this time you know Dubai did not actually have a very good system of undergraduate education um, and it was still a country that was uh, you know very few and far limited options in terms of where you could go to college at. Um, so, you know, I, I figured that I needed to move out of Dubai and, and study astrophysics and applied math. And uh, I spent a little bit of time in Pakistan and then uh, at, at Cambridge before I moved to Houston to pursue my passions. So so in Pakistan, you had a pretty crazy experience, too. I mean, talking about dealing with uncertainty, right? I mean, you were kidnapped there. I mean, that's 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 insane. So how was that story? Tell, tell us about it. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's crazy because uh, the around the time I moved to Pakistan, it was it was a very unstable time and it's a developing country obviously and only you know 30 40 year old country that had you know been born in 1947 when they split from India and you know we're surrounded by uh, you know countries that were also very unstable so it had a big impact on the actual uh, political climate within the country and uh, you know, poverty is a thing and, you know, not, you know, and people, there's a big divide between the haves and the have-nots. And, uh, you know, I was, I was in Pakistan, uh, I was uh, 15 years old when I was uh, uh, in, in a car with, with my cousin and we got, st we were stopped at a red light. And uh, next thing I know, there is a cold, hard metal object that I'm feeling at my temple and I look around and it's a gun. <laughs> And uh, there are two guys that, uh, you know, are, are screaming at us and saying that get into the back seat so that they could get into the driver and front seat. These these two guys jump into the front seat and uh, start driving the car while one guy sits in the back with us and, and holds us at gunpoint. And uh, we're terrified, not understanding what's going on and what why is this happening? And, you know, we're like, hey, you want money? You can have money. You can have the car and my cell phone and whatever else you need, but let us go. And these guys were, were, were not planning on just stealing our stuff, but they were actually planning on using our car to go rob other places. So they kept us at gunpoint for uh, what seemed like an eternity and robbed like six supermarkets or something. And then uh, one of the supermarkets, one of the guys uh, was armed and he ended up shooting one of the robbers. Wow. And, and that robber comes stumbling down back into the car. And next thing we know, we're hauling ass at maybe, I don't know, what felt like 200 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was just surreal as it was happening. And then finally, they, they take us to a isolated spot. And, uh, you know, my cousin and I are obviously terrified and, and not sure what our fate was. And, you know, they're debating between themselves whether they should let us live or 
uh, kill us. And, you know, they decided to kill us. Uh, however, uh, the day was not intended for us to die because uh, they, they actually pulled out a gun and started shooting at us, except the gun wouldn't work. Uh, so thank God for uh, poor quality weapons <laughs> during the time. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so that happened and we survived. And once they realized their gun wasn't going to work and it was going to get pretty messy, they, they decided to just leave us and run away. And uh, it was the craziest experience of my life because, you know, at 15 years old, most of us are, you know, still trying to figure out uh, how do we how do we get onto the next, you know, cool toy or, uh, you know, how do we make more friends or whatever. And, and all of a sudden got to experience a point of inflection in life where, you know, your life sort of flashes in front of you in, in microseconds and you realize that it's so fragile. And... Uh, you know, post surviving that, it 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 changed me as a person forever because it gave me a completely different, I would say, aperture in how I looked at life and uh, what it meant and uh, how we can't really take it for granted. What well, was obviously, you know, talking about uncertainty and and I guess as a founder now, you know, as as someone that is building something from nothing, you know, into something meaningful. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty situations, but I'm sure that, you know, at 15, I mean, you're already able to process, you know, certain things in life. Uh, I guess, I guess what was that lesson for you to be learned about uncertainty? You know, um, I think the, the biggest lesson that I took away from that was, man, things can always get worse. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's crazy to think about it, but it, it puts a sense of optimism in a person's mind, even when you're in the midst of really, really, really terrible problems and, uh, you know, financial crisis or, you know, health problems or family issues or whatever. When you go through an experience like that, you realize that, man, it can't, it can actually get a lot worse, right? And, and it gives you perspective. And honestly, it, it trained, uh, at least me, at a very early age, that number one, you shouldn't feel entitled for anything in life. Number two, nothing is for granted. Uh, number three, it can always get worse. Number four, life is short. Do something with it. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. No kidding. So, I mean, in your case, you ended up, you know, pursuing, you know, the, the, the whole physics and applied math and, and you landed in Cambridge, you know, to study. Uh, and, and while, while in college, I mean, you, you started, you know, really your, your first company, you know, which was this, uh, this fleet market. So, so what was that? What was that concept? What, what, what were you doing there? Yeah, I was actually in Houston pursuing my degree in finance and, you know, was trying to uh, make ends meet. I come from a very humble family and, you know, my, my parents, uh, you know, were, 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 did not come from wealth. So, you know, as, as I'm hustling in college and trying to make ends meet and pay for my tuition and, you know, doing odd jobs here and odd jobs there, I, I, I very quickly realized that, uh, you know, it wasn't going to be enough money for me to be able to pay for college and, and have a life and, you know, have anything to be honest. And, uh, you know, much like, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that kind of figure stuff out, I just kind of sat down and just started to figure out what I needed to do. And I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to start a business here. And, uh, you know, I thought about 
had no idea what to start and do what, but I knew that, you know, I should buy something and sell it for more, you know, basic yeah. 101. And then I was like, okay, well, how do I buy something that is not very expensive so that I can sell it for more money? And I was like, okay, you know, if I buy jewelry from, uh, from Pakistan or India or some of these other countries, then I could sell it for a little bit more money. And then I was like, okay, once that was figured out, I was like, okay, where should I sell it? And I was like, well, you know, maybe I should open up a shop. And I was like, I don't have money for that. And then I was like, maybe I should open up a kiosk in the mall. And I was like, I don't have money for that. Uh, the only thing I could do was uh, get a weekend stall at a flea market. And, uh, you know, th so, that, so that's, that's what I did. Uh, and uh, even for that, to be honest, I needed $1,000, which I didn't have. Um, I asked for a few people to give me $1,000 and nobody gave me $1,000. But then I asked uh, 10 people to give me $100 each. Um, and I was able to get that, which was, which was great. Uh, and uh, that helped start the flea market business. And, uh, you know, fast forward a few years after starting that, I um, grew that to, to a pretty sizable business that, you know, had, had multiple locations. And, and we ultimately sold it uh, when I was 24 and uh, made more money than I thought I ever would have. And realized that, man, this is one of the greatest countries in the world. Uh, where you can come here as a nobody and uh, become a somebody uh, just yeah. by putting in the work. hundred <laughs> percent, and I and I think that as a, as an immigrant as well myself, I can totally you know agree with 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 that. Now, you know, for you, I mean, once the, once this transaction was done, you know, you you, I mean, your your wife, you know, was pregnant back then, and you realized that healthcare, you know, was something important. So you did, you know, a little bit of corporate. And you ended up landing on this company called Blinds.com, which ended up getting acquired. You know, I'm sure that that acquisition process, because you were there and you were able to grow the business quite nicely, part of that team. So how was that acquisition process like? You know, seeing it more at a different level, you know, where, where you were helping on the operating side. Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's exciting and terrifying at the same time. It's exciting because you realize that, you know, the team has built something valuable enough for a company like Home Depot to want it. And Home Depot wasn't the only company uh, out there that wanted Blinds.com. And it was very, very, very exciting uh, to to see what was happening. But at the same time, it was terrifying because, you know, you're always thinking about like, hey, what if you do something in the process that causes the deal to fall apart? Or, you know, what if the deal goes through and it's not the right cultural fit uh, by being part of a larger company? And, uh, you know, what happens even though, uh, you know, the, the leadership team gets to take cash off the table? But, you know, not, none of us wanted to stop working after this and we wanted to continue to build stuff. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and again, uh, I would say, uh, call it fear that goes into going through these processes because so many things have to go right for a transaction like that to happen, right? Yeah. You're, not only does your business have to be good, the, the actual team has to be good. Your ability to translate value to the acquirer has to be good enough. And then, by the way, you have to be able to tell the story in a way that the acquirer understands and appreciates and values you correctly, right? So in all of the million micro interactions you have with the acquirer, um, you're trying to optimize the interactions in such a way that creates the maximum value for your company. Uh, something that, you know, Jay, who was the founder, 
uh, had built over many, many, many years. And, um, you know, so it was, a, it was a really interesting experience. And honestly, it became a, a real life MBA for me uh, when, when I went through the process of helping, you know, blinds.com go from 20, 30 million to hundreds of millions of dollars and ultimately becoming the CFO and COO of the company. Um, and, and then, you know, working part of the homedepot.com leadership team and, and seeing that business grow from, you know, a couple of billion to, you know, tens of billions of dollars and just going through that, you know, I would say J curve like growth in, in, I would say different sizes and scales, exiting companies and, and learning how to raise capital and capitalize the organization in an appropriate way that allows them to sustain and grow their business. Um, you can't learn that in school, man, you know, and it just, it just became a, uh, I would say training ground, uh, for, for me to start cart.com. So then let's talk about cart.com because after the acquisition, you did stay at Home Depot for four, I mean, close to five years. But, you know, during, during this time, you know, it's also when you started to incubate, you know, the idea of what would be next. You know, in this case, you know, card.com. So tell us about what was that incubation process like and how did you go about, you know, bringing card.com to life? Yeah. You know, people talk about ideas like ideas are a light bulb that just goes on and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you have it. And that's not how it works, right? Typically, you're formulating the idea through many, many, many years of thinking. And, uh, you know, my, my co-founder, Jim Jacobson, uh, had actually gone through a very interesting journey himself where he had built a company called Arctic Outdoors that uh, went from like, you know, zero to $236 million in the first year it, it launched. And, and it was an e-commerce company selling coolers online. And, you know, he went through the same experience as I did where we knew that, hey, in order for you to be successful in e-commerce, it wasn't about having a great website. It wasn't about having great marketing. It wasn't about having great fulfillment. It was about how the whole piece, like the entire ecosystem comes together to be able to execute on an end-to-end -end unified vision where, which allows you to have, honestly, the best possible experience for your end consumers, right? And both of us sort of like, as we formulated this problem statement, which was success in e-commerce is all about vertically integrating the end-to-end -end ecosystem that's needed to execute on e-commerce, we kind of looked around and realized that it didn't exist. Like the only company that was providing a end-to-end e-commerce ecosystem was Amazon, uh, where you could send a pallet of product over to Amazon and Amazon would take care of everything else, you know, between uh, fulfillment and, and marketplace optimization and, and, and all the different tools they provided. Uh, and, and, and honestly, Amazon went from selling books to a world dominant player owning half of e-commerce because they were providing a fully vertically integrated, uh, ecosystem. However, the, the, the challenge we found with Amazon was, you know, Amazon is, is an amazing business, but they, they don't let these brands have access to the customer data. They don't let them have a relationship with the end consumers. They take 30, 40% of your sales. And, you know, they also uh, don't, uh, you know, at, at many times compete with your product, right? They, they have their own products that they launch in the marketplace that compete against your products at times. So, uh, you know, we were like, man, the world needs an Amazon-like ecosystem off of Amazon where they're able to launch a direct-to-consumer business on an end-to-end -end platform where someone could do everything and anything uh, e-commerce e enablement related in a, in a 
single point. And, you know, the, the vision and the problem for us was so obvious that we were actually shocked that nobody in the world was doing this. Uh, you know, 10 months into running cart, I, I realized why nobody else was doing this because it's really, really hard to do. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's not defying the laws of physics and, uh, you know, we're figuring it out. And, you know, I would say we've actually figured quite a bit of it out. Nice. So how do you guys make money at cart.com? You know, we make money by helping brands make money. Um, and, and the easiest way to think about that is uh, we come in and say, hey, what part of your e-commerce business do you need help with? And that could be marketing for your e-commerce business or uh, online storefront for your e-commerce business, or it could be your fulfillment operations. Uh, it could be two or three of those things or all of it. Uh, and, and as we go through that process, we help these brands identify what their pain points are. And then we say, hey, look, here are the six ways we can help you grow. And uh, as you grow, we'll participate in your growth. So, you know, we offer... Uh, very, very, very simplistic GMB-based uh, pricing. Uh, in some cases, you know, we offer subscription pricing. Uh, in some cases, we offer project-based pricing, depending on what type of work you're trying to do with us. Uh, but you know, the, the 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 key here is that we are focused on making brands successful, and as they grow, Cart.com grows. Got it. I mean, and in your guys' case, I mean, you didn't do the traditional, you know, financing cycles going with life cycles. You know, as they would say, every 18 to 24 months, you literally right right away, you, you raise the seed. Then like within the same, you know, year, Series A, then Series B. I mean, it has been insane. So, so how did you guys think about capitalizing the business initially? And then also how much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, uh, we've raised $140 million in less than 12 months. And look, I think this kind of goes back to maybe my philosophy a little bit, which is life is too short. <laughs> and which means that, you know, you should not, not take time for granted. And unless there is a reason to grow, go slowly and methodically, we don't want to. We want to go as fast as possible, as big as possible and become a dominant player in the world as quickly as possible. Um, you know, we are uh, not intending to and not built to play on the back foot. We play on the front foot. And, you know, when you're competing against, you know, trillion dollar companies, you have to capitalize appropriately and you have to play aggressively. You have to think beyond the box and you've got to be brand obsessed, right? Part of the reason why we invested so much capital and, and raised so much capital was as we talked to these brands and we found out what their pain points were and we discovered that they didn't have the money to invest in that infrastructure, we said, we will do it on your behalf, right? We will go make those investments and we will build that infrastructure so that you could use it and grow successfully. So, you know, our... our process begins with brand obsession and then it works its way backwards from it and uh, that allows us to you know play uh, a very aggressive game of which fundraising is just a part of you 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 keep talking about the how life is short and we got to make the the best out of it you know one thing that you have an advantage there is that you've had 
multiple life or death situations. I mean, in fact, you know, more than, than, than a lot of people that I know. You know, in fact, when whenever you go to the casino, I'm going to call you because you're a very lucky guy. I mean, tell us about, you know, that lucky experience that you had also on a plane, which happened recently that, that made the board of car.com to recommend you not to fly or to make usage of your <laughs> pilot license again. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, one could argue I'm lucky, one could, or, or you could say I'm unlucky, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I, I recently, a couple of years ago, decided to uh, become a pilot because, uh, you know, I've been fascinated with space and flight and aerodynamics. And, um, you know, I, I was also uh, afraid of heights and I don't like being afraid of anything. So I said, I'm going to go learn how to fly a plane. And that's one way of not being afraid of heights. So I learned how to fly a plane and, and, and started flying. And, um, you know, I, I, about, about, I think six, eight months ago or so I was, I was flying in, uh, you know, beautiful Houston weather that, you know, sometimes can turn ugly very quickly. That's kind of Houston for you. Um, and I, ha I knew that there was a little bit of a storm coming and I am a, I am a, a VFR rated, right? So I'm only supposed to fly when visual conditions are such that I don't have to use my instruments to fly. Uh, I don't have the instrument rating to fly, uh, but I know how to use the instruments in case I run into trouble. But uh, so, so I'm flying around and, you know, I see some storm clouds coming in and I'm like, okay, I should probably head back. And, uh, you know, I, I turn back uh towards uh, Houston Executive Airport. That's kind of where I fly out of. That's in the Katy area. And, uh, you know, right around, uh, I would say three, three and a half miles uh, west of uh, Houston Executive Airport, uh, I realized that the cloud ceiling came uh, down from about 1,800 to about uh, 900 feet. And I don't know, man, like maybe two minutes is what it felt like, but it was probably longer. And, you know, if you're, when, you're, when you're coming in for landing, you're typically flying at about 1,200, uh, 1200 feet. So there was a 300 feet gap in uh, my visibility. So, you know, I decided to, uh, you know, come down a little bit. Uh, and uh, as I'm starting to come down and starting to get a little cloudy and it's starting to rain a little bit and my visibility is getting really bad, uh, my attitude indicator in the plane stopped working. So an attitude indicator for, for those of you that don't don't know or may not know is is basically an instrument that allows you to know if your plane is nose up or nose down. And and the reason it's important is because when you don't have a lot of visibility uh, in four dimensionality, it's very hard for you to know if you're going up or down. Now, you can rely on other things like how fast you're losing altitude or how fast you're gaining altitude. Uh, but the problem is by the time you realize you're losing altitude, it's already too late, right? So the attitude indicator is probably like one of the most important instruments, maybe outside of the yoke that you use to fly the plane. Right. So I'm like flying a little bit blind and the attitude indicator stops working. And man, I'm just like, what have I gotten myself into? And, you know, thankfully, uh, your, your instincts kick in and I, I lower the throttle a little bit and, and, nosedive a little bit so I could decrease my altitude as quickly as possible. Uh, I didn't want to be in um, invisibility for longer than, uh, you know, two seconds if I had to. So I uh, was able to come down to about 800, 850 feet and uh, get some visibility and uh, get into the pattern 
to and the pattern is what you get into before you get uh, land the plane uh, and 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 land it safely. And uh, you know it was it was amazing. Uh, it was it was amazing because uh, I was I was I was scared, but it was also thrilling that I was able to land it safely and I had accomplished something that was really hard to do. Uh, but yeah, I keep getting myself into <laughs> these situations. But look, I think that that's a reminder too of, of startups. No, it's all about jumping out of a cliff, as Reed Hoffman says, and and building a plane on the way down. So you were able to land it nicely, and and that's obviously what you guys are doing too with Cart. Obviously, the board was not too thrilled, and now you can't fly that often. But uh, <laughs> but in your guys' case, I mean, for the people that are listening, how big is Card.com today. I mean, anything that you can share with us? Yeah, we're, we're a team of about 300 people, actually 320 or so. Uh, we're going to be closer to 400 by the end of the year and uh, hopefully six to 800 people by the end of next year. Uh, you know, we have grown at speeds that I don't think I've ever even observed from far any company do. Uh, you know, today we've got close to 26, 2700 brands. Uh, we are likely going to have close to 5,000 brands by Q1 of next year. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, over a billion dollars in GMV flowing through our platform, which is, which is crazy to think about a business that, you know, didn't start very long ago uh, to have been able to amass that kind of scale. Uh, and we're just very grateful that, uh, you know, the, the most talented people in the world have chosen to come work uh, at CART and be part of the founding team and the team that builds this business uh, to, to you know, true world domination in the future, hopefully. I mean, we're talking about a year. Uh, I mean, close to a year, you know, a billion, you know, in GMV in a year. I mean, uh, that's like, that's like insane. Uh, Omer, I got to tell you now, now, how do you do it so that, because obviously you guys have also used the acquisition path. I mean, you've done how many acquisitions? Seven? We've completed seven acquisitions to date. Uh, we're probably going to close on three or four more before the end of the year. Uh, we're, we're a very acquisitive company. Um, you know, M&A is a core part of our strategy and, um, you know, it's uh, accelerant for us and uh, allows us to execute on uh, this end-to-end -end capability play much faster than most people can and would, to be honest. And why M&A? Because M&A, you would typically do it a little bit farther down the line on the life of a company. So why did you guys that M&A, why did you think that M&A was a good route to follow for the growth? Yeah, look, there's nothing traditional about CART, right? Uh, the speed at which it's grown, the speed at which it's raised capital. Uh, you know, we, we uh, so why M&A should not be a part of our company? We sort of like said, hey, there's no reason for it not to be part of our company. Uh, and look, I think, you know, there has been uh, historical precedents that, that 70 plus percent of M&A transactions fail. And there's a lot of content and material and information about that around that. Uh, however, the reality is that, you know, there is a new type of M&A that is emerging in the world. And McKinsey actually wrote an article about this recently. Uh, it's called programmatic M&A, which is... Um, you're not just going out and buying companies because you're taking out competitors or you're vertically integrating, but you're buying companies as part of a very deliberate operating strategy. Um, and uh, when you have a very scientific approach to M&A and it is a core part of your strategy, uh, you do it in a way that, you know, um, uh, you honestly cannot afford to have a 70% failure rate in it, right? So you find a way of doing it right and having a 100% success rate uh, versus a 70% failure rate. And that's kind of what we're doing. And 
we've been able to figure this out early, to be honest, again, because of a very, very, very talented team we have in place. Um, we've got people that have collectively, you know, made, I don't know, uh, close to, a, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 acquisitions in, the, in their careers. And, you know, that helps. Yeah, no kidding. So, so imagine you go to sleep tonight, Omer, and you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of card.com is fully realized. What does that world look like? We are the largest company in the world. We are the company that is well known to operate a culture where people want to come work for us. We are a company where brands come to us because they want to be treated well and treated fairly. We are a company where brands come to get power back and not be reliant on monolithic giants to be successful in e-commerce or retail. Uh, we are globally present and are dominating e-commerce enablement in a way that has never been done before. We are now known as the company that disrupted the disruptors. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, so imagine I was able to uh, take you into a time machine, Omer, and, I, and I'm bringing you to that moment where you are thinking about giving your notice at the Home Depot and thinking, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go and pursue this thing. Imagine you had the opportunity to have a chat with that younger Omer and you were able to give yourself one piece of advice before starting this company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? You should have done it sooner, Omer. <laughs> <laughs> you waited too long. That's how You waited way too long. You were scared and didn't want uncertainty, even though you had grown up in it. Don't do that. That's amazing. I love it. Well, Omer, this was amazing. For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say Please, hi? Please, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Just uh, follow me or add me or message me. Uh, it's, it's, I'm very active on LinkedIn, and uh, it's, uh, it's the one social media channel that I, I, I spend a lot of time in. Uh, you know, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very accessible to people and, and always willing and happy, uh, when I'm able to help, uh, you know, younger versions of me or older versions of me either way. Uh, but, you know, I, uh, I, I truly believe that I've been very, very, very lucky and very blessed in, in having the experience that I've had, uh, and I'm never afraid to share that with anybody that needs it. Amazing. Well, Omer, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.